Welcome to Delighting in the Trinity with Michael Reeves, brought to you by Union. This podcast brings you teaching and preaching from our archives, and you can find more resources, audio, video, and books at unionpublishing.org. All right, shall I pray for us and then we'll, um, then we'll get on? Let me pray for us. Great Lord, thank you so much for such a gospel, for such a cosmos-changing, life-saving gospel, such a beautiful gospel. Thank you so much for the heroes who've defended it in the past. Thank you so much for great theologians, great preachers of the past. We pray as we start looking at where we're at today with understandings of scripture that you would protect us, that you would guide us, that you would give us wisdom so that we might have a true view of your word for ourselves, that we might love you more and that we might be able to protect your people. Help us, great Lord, and bring us to love your scriptures so that we might love you more. Through Christ's most precious name. Amen. Okay, now, uh, where we got to last time... Now, is that going to be in your way? Or that's all right. Okay, where we got to last time, um, if you remember, is we got ourselves basically a Trinitarian doctrine of Revelation and saw really where things had got to with the Reformation. So, what a Trinitarianly informed Reformational doctrine of Scripture looked like. So, we left things in a pretty happy place yesterday. Things are a lot more complex today. Um, 500 years really after the Reformation started um, so today theologians don't really talk about the perfections of scripture today language is about inerrancy or infallibility personal versus propositional revelation blah 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 blah, blah. and I think we can work out if, if, if we can sort out where we should fit into all this modern language on scripture. Not only will it give us an ability to be able to engage with what people are saying, but it'll make our doctrine of scripture a little bit crisper as well. So we'll help help sort of tighten things down where we got to yesterday. Okay, is that okay? So what I want to do is I want us to see, first of all, how did we get from the Reformation to today? What happened? Okay, so that's my first game plan. Okay, second generation of the Reformation now. So we've seen first generation with um, people like Calvin and Zwingli. Second generation of the Reformation, you start getting a group emerging who think that the church desperately still needs to be reformed. But that the mainstream reformers hadn't gone far enough. Because this group we're seeing there are lots of other traditional beliefs that needs to be overthrown, just as much as purgatory, indulgences, and the Mass had been overthrown. So this group was saying, just as much as the Mass, we need to get rid of doctrines like Trinity, these old, traditional Christian beliefs. We need to reform them. And the leading figure of this group was a guy called Socinus, or Socinius, or um, you can call him, here he is, you can call him whatever you like, really. that wasn't his real name. Um, sometimes you'll read him, uh, he'll be Fausto um, Sosinus, sometimes Faustus Sosinus. Uh, it's all made up names anyway. His real name is Sotsini. 
He's an Italian from Siena. Everyone just fancied up their names in those days. It was just the thing to do. So Luther wasn't Luther. He was Luda. Um, Calvin wasn't Calvin. He was Covin. Um, and he changed it from, you know, common French Covin to Calvinus. You know, it just sounds a bit more impre impressive. Or, uh, I know, um, Melanchthon wasn't Melanchthon. It was Schwarzerd but Melanchthon sounded a bit cooler, or Hausschein sounded a bit sort of plebby, so he turned it to Echolampadius. Whoa, Greek. <laughs> you know, so everyone did that kind of thing. And anyway, Sotzini, oh, I'll show you. Um, was best buds with this dude. Well, he ain't a dude, exactly. This guy, here's a nice little picture of him being burned. Um, Michael Servetus, who was burnt for denying the Trinity, amongst er other heresies in Geneva in 1555. And these guys um, were very much cut from the same cloth. And what you get to see, so there's an attempt to get rid of Trinity, traditional doctrines like this at this sort of time. Um, Servetus is from Spain, which is quite important because in Spain, the population is pretty mixed Christian, Jewish, Muslim. And in places like that, people are much keener to ditch Trinity, because Trinity is the offence. So get rid of the awkward doctrines. And we're just worshipping one God altogether, cuddly. Yeah? So people like Savitas liking um, ditching Trinity. Um, Sosinus Sosinius Sosini, uh, he's one of the main guys trying to drive this kind of reformation through. And the reason he could get to it, what's... Um, really the kind of methodology behind it for Sotsini is that reason and not the Bible should be the judge of what we believe. So, which is why the Trinity is shown the door, because one can't be three. That just doesn't make sense. And so, as soon as you've ditched Trinity, of course, Jesus is no longer God. So, Jesus is no longer really a saviour. Jesus really, for Sotsini, is just a teacher, not a saviour. And the cross isn't really about sin being dealt with. It's basically, it's just a moving martyrdom. Um, because forgiveness of sins is not an issue for Sotsini. Um, because divine judgment has been denied as well. So do you get to see, right back at this time... Sotsini is really sowing the seed for rational, moral, modern religiosity. He's the father of it all. Well, here is, uh, and Sotsinianism was um, the sect that he started. It's the origins of the Unitarian Church. And here is their cardinal rule for understanding and interpreting the Bible. Nothing that contains a contradiction or violates sound reason may be accepted. Which, of course, sounds very reasonable. Um, but, of course, what is sound reason? Is it sound reason that God becomes a man and dies? Now, that's absurd. Obviously, that's not true. And nothing contains a contradiction. Obviously, three can't be one, so Trinity's out the door, too. You see where it's going. Something that sounds very reasonable, producing an entirely different religion. 
So reason judging the Bible. Second generation Reformation. Um, and uh, just interestingly, the mainstream reformers and the Catholic Church saw these guys as the biggest threat around. They, all of them thought these are the biggest uber-heretics there are. Anyway, at the same sort of time, you get this guy, uh, René Descartes, coming up with what he almost certainly thought was a new apologetic for his day. So basically, Descartes wanted to think up, okay, let's think of the most hardcore uber-skeptic, someone who's so cynical they doubt the existence of almost everything. How do you deal with someone like that is Descartes' issue. Okay? And he thinks, okay, what do they doubt? They could doubt the existence of God, easy. They could doubt the existence of the world. They could doubt the existence of their own bodies if they're really perverse. You know, they could, if someone's a real uber-skeptic, they could imagine, hey, maybe I'm just a brain in a vat being controlled by Martians and you are just um, what my imagination is providing as electrodes are being um, inserted into my brain, Yeah. Uh, that, that's what I could imagine. In fact, um, I've got a mate who went to um, work in a theology and philosophy department of a university where the head of the department believed this. And it's called solipsism. You know, he believed that he's the only one that exists and everything else is just a figment of his imagination. And he thought, man, I, I thought all this has died out in the 19th century. I don't think anyone actually believed this stuff anymore. And so he went to speak to, him, uh, to someone else in the department saying, shall I go and speak to this guy, a, a real living solipsist? I mean, how weird. Um, I, I could just have a nice, interesting conversation with him. And the guy said, no, don't, don't talk to him about it. Because if he goes, we all go. <laughs> anyway, Descartes thought, Descartes thought, if someone could doubt all of those things, how do you engage with them? Well, what could they not doubt that they're doubting? And so, in all their doubts, they must be thinking. And therefore, there must be someone doing the thinking. So even if there's a, their body is an illusion, they know that they're doubting, therefore they're thinking, therefore they exist. And that's Descartes' famous phrase, um, Literally, dubito, I doubt, ergo, cogito, I think, ergo, sum. I doubt, therefore I think, therefore I am. Dubito, ergo, cogito, ergo, sum. Um, and that, for Descartes, was the one really sure thing. The, the sure foundation on which to build, I think, or I doubt, and Descartes built it up through there, through some pretty dodgy arguments, to be honest, to say, well, therefore, it's reasonable to suppose that there's a God, and then it's reasonable to suppose that the God that exists is the one worshipped by Christians. You can go, it's all a little bit flimsy. Uh, but but you, you get to see the main point, that what he's done is he said, what's the one thing you can really, really trust? Your mind. So he's created a new foundation for faith, our minds. So you see, now he's almost certainly not intended to do that. He's meant it to be an apologetic for Christianity in his day, but he's actually replaced the Bible with our minds as the supreme authority. 
And so you get to see the relationship between the Bible and reason shifting in both biblical interpretation with Sotsini and apologetic stroke philosophy with Descartes. Now, just to sort of um, sidetrack for a second, I think this is something now very deep in our psyche. We're, we're all just children of that change. Because, I mean, if you think of it about just how we view a book, that before the Enlightenment, people would always read books as something above them. Books are authorities to be learned from. And so books are above you. Yeah? At the Enlightenment, that flips, and you become, your mind is over the book. Yeah, so your mind is the authority over the book. So before the Enlightenment, you listen to this authority, and you're almost not very critical. You get to see pre-Enlightenment thinkers saying, oh, this, this guy said it, so it's very hard to disagree because it's a great authority. And you almost think you're just not being very critical here. Post-Enlightenment, people are so critical that they're hardly able to see a book as an authority. And, of course, when that plays into Bible reading, as it does, it's a very hard habit to snap out of, to snap out of seeing ourselves as an authority over the text, rather than simply learning from the text. And, and so I just want to give a little suggestion. I wonder if we tend to study the Bible too much instead of reading it. So please study the Bible lots, but I wonder if, if we just read swathes of the Bible without subjecting it to our little questions a little bit more, I think it will start assuming a different position for us, a more pre-enlightenment position. If we could just read this book so much that this becomes our air, our atmosphere, more real to us, more familiar than anything else, I think that would be a good start. So I'm not saying don't study, don't ask the critical questions, but I think we're so used to asking critical questions that it's hard to take the Bible on its own terms because we're always reading it through our own critical apparatus. Does that make sense? I think if we got into just reading the Bible more... That would be good. So, for instance, when I, the amount of times I've said to students that as students they've got more time than they will later, so now is the perfect time to start reading your Bible through once a year. And the amount of times I've had people laugh out loud when I said, said I remember it classically, it was at Cambridge, and I suggested to Cambridge students, who should be used to reading, most of them, um, you could read your Bible through once a year. There was laughter everywhere, and I thought, I think I know why you're, you're thinking, I'm saying, study the Bible through every year. Now, of course, that would be virtually impossible to do. Don't do that. Read it, though. And that's very easy to do. And I think people just can hardly hear the language of encouragement to read Scripture because they're hearing it as study it. A far more intellectual engagement, a far more critical engagement. Anyway, sorry, that was a slight sidetrack. Back to the um, relationship between Bible and reason. Is this okay so far? Are you with me? Back to the relationship between Bible and reason. So we've seen the relationship changing. Now, obviously, the most obvious place for change was in science. And the key guy here 
um, was Galileo. And, um, of course, um, for Galileo... By the way, um, these guys, um, Socinius, Descartes, Galileo, they're all rough contemporaries. So um, this is a major sea change happening at the end of the 16th, beginning of the 17th century of reason replacing the Bible. Now, for Galileo, the relationship between the Bible and reason or science is obviously quite a hot issue. One he has to think through as what he is saying is contradicting what the church is saying. And um, now here's what Galileo says about the Bible. He says, I think that the authority of Holy Scripture is directed mainly towards convincing men of such conceptions and principles which because they transcend all human thought, cannot find belief through any science or any means other than through the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Or, as he once said a bit more simply, Scripture teaches us how to get to heaven, not how the heavens move. Yeah? And that's the split Galileo makes. And that, I think, summed up what was perhaps the key shift that happened over the following two centuries. That the Bible became confined to being allowed to address only religious issues or personal belief, you know, spiritual things like how to get to heaven. And it could be an absolute authority in that realm. But from now on, the real world of hard fact belonged to reason. So you've got two spheres of authority. And it has to be said that basically the church on the whole just crumbled before the argument. The great German church historian Klaus Schulder put it like this. He said, the less credible... This is a, this is a book I'd thoroughly recommend you um, looking at if you're interested in following this kind of stuff up a bit more. Klaus Schulder's The Birth of Modern Critical Theology. He says, the less credible historical statements of scripture appear in detail, the more theology takes refuge in eternal truths, which it believes that it can find there, and which also exist before the forum of reason. The Bible, then, becomes a handbook of morality, whose doctrines are acceptable to any reasonable person. The rise of criticism shattered natural trust in the literal truth of the Bible and thus robbed its authority of essential support. From now on, if its statements were held to be valid at all, they were held to be valid only in the religious sphere. So, science would tell us how the world is. Religion, the Bible, must content itself with questions like why, questions that can't be um, disproved. Now, of course, the problem is that the Bible is full of what it appears to think are historical events and hard facts. And so buying into the deal that the Bible has nothing to say about how the world actually is meant abandoning trust in what it's actually saying. So the Bible had to, in these centuries, become a mere handbook of morality. And as soon as that happened, it was never going to turn the world upside down as it once had. 
because no longer could it actually be challenging the very way we view all reality. And what the Enlightenment very quickly showed is that you cannot have these two authorities coexisting. Scripture telling us about um, the supernatural, science telling us about the natural, because one is always going to be the ultimate authority over the other. You cannot serve both scripture and reason. You cannot have two ultimate authorities. And of course, history showed that to be true. Science won. And as people started relying on the latest theories of science, the Bible got jettisoned every time it contradicted the new authority. And thus, says the Lord, was replaced with, it has been scientifically proved. You know, and lab coats replaced cassocks as the garb of the new priesthood. I mean, that's just how history went. Now, all that starts looking like quite familiar modern territory. That's the kind of shift that's been happening. But then, okay, what's happening all this time to those who do cling to Scripture as their supreme authority? What's happening to evangelicalism in this time? Well, obviously, absolutely loads and way more than we, we can deal with now. But one way um, we can go in, which is, I think, an essential way to go in, is through a book called Fundamentalism. Um, written in 1977 by this guy, Professor James Barr, who was, I think at the time, he was Regius Professor of Hebrew at Oxford. Now, Barr, um, he foams at the mouth in his hatred of evangelicalism. He is an anti-evangelical fundamentalist. And when he talks about fundamentalism, he means evangelicalism. That's what he's talking about. And... The large part of what he has to say in his argument is that while evangelicals claim to hold on to the fundamentals, actually we're so deeply compromised as to make our position untenable. Now, reading this ain't pretty. Reading fundamentalism, it's like taking an enema. It's a pretty unpleasant experience, but it does clean you out. Um, and I thoroughly recommend it as much as anything because he says UCCF is the classic case of the fundamentalism he is attacking. Now, this guy ain't a numpty. He's to be taken very seriously. So when he makes this savage an attack directly on UCCF, I think we should listen. So, what's his argument? He says, basically, uh, we, we have no right, really, to call ourselves fundamentalist or evangelical. Um, our position is untenable. Now, one of the areas he really enjoys piling in and landing the punches is the whole area of the miraculous. Um, really, anything that sits awkwardly with a modern secular worldview. So, literal six-day creation... Um, plagues in Egypt, crossing of the Red Sea, resurrection, it, those sort of things that, you know, if, if you're a um, secular closed universe type, you're not going to like. And Barr looks at how evangelicals deal with those things, and the conclusion he comes to is, we don't really care what the Bible says. 
because we've exchanged the Bible for something else as our fundamental authority. So, for example, he takes Bernard Ram's book, The Christian View of Science and Scripture, which he calls a thoroughly and totally conservative work which should be read by all evangelicals. And after pulling its arguments apart, he says this, Clearly much good fun can be had from reading Ram. He's enjoyed just ripping Ram's arguments to bits. And, um, but at the moment, we're concerned to make only one point. The view of the world upon which Ram relies at every step is the modern scientific view of the world. Thus, contrary to what many people would expect, the scientific view of the world is the one into which the Bible is fitted the biblical material is thus twisted to fit the various theories that can bring it into accord with science. E.g., we don't care what the Bible is actually saying. We just want to show we are following it and we're not crazy to do so because it fits into what everyone else believes. So we're not saying anything different. And he gives hundreds of examples of this sort of thing. Here's another we move to yet another venerated conservative publication, the New Bible Dictionary. And J.A. Thompson there tells us, Genesis 1 has an artificial literary structure and is not concerned to provide a picture of chronological sequence, but only to assert the fact that God made everything. End quote. Only that God made everything, says Barr. How are the mighty fallen? How ridiculous a mouse is the mountain of fundamentalist interpretation brought forth? What radical liberal or wild modernist did not believe only that God made everything? And so he can conclude, the acute religiosity of the fundamentalist does not alter the fact that in another sense he almost fully accepts the secular and e economic structure of the world in which we live. The result being, evangelicals have no real content to proclaim because they're trying so hard to fit in. So he says, um, their doctrine of creation is boiled down to a mere affirmation that God made everything and their sermons say little more than God is sovereign, read your Bible. Now, Barr's argument, it is a bit melodramatic and it's certainly not sensitive to shades of difference within evangelicalism. But if a serious opponent of evangelicalism can think we have swapped the authority of the Bible for some other authority, surely we must take a very long, hard look at ourselves. So in this, uh, I hope gonna, I'm not wanting to get into the Bible science debate and actually question uh, questions about the interpretation of Genesis 1, just his fundamental argument. What's driving the interpretation of Genesis 1? What is actually our supreme authority? Okay? And it's not just Barr. Here's something from Bill Plasher over in the States. Plasher wrote, The Christian gospel, too, can offer a kind of countercultural critique of the values and beliefs of our times. But these days, at least in the world of universities and high culture, those dissatisfied with secular modernity most often turn to the East or to the distant mythic past. Stop there. Isn't that perceptive? People, I think, were turning to the East a few years ago, but now, isn't it achingly cool to go to the distant mythic past? That's the cool paganism today. 
One reason, Plasher says, seems to be that Christianity cannot criticise our culture very effectively if it's already accepted many of the assumptions of that culture as the price of intellectual respectability. Perhaps the time has come for a more unapologetic theology. Now I want to leave that there. Really is a, a challenge to be, for us to be thinking through that even as evangelicals, the post-Reformation shift has hit us. And it's a very valid question to ask what really is our supreme authority. Any questions before we move on? Are we okay? Okay, we'll move on. Let's move on. Okay, with that little historical background in place, how we've got to here, what has happened then to how theologians speak of Scripture now? Well, there were two old words um, that were traditionally used of Scripture. Inspiration and infallibility. Now, at the time of the Reformation, for instance, theologians wouldn't actually use the words very much. Um, really, uh, though their whole theology assumes the truth of those words, um, they didn't use the words inspiration and infallibility much because they didn't think they needed to defend the ideas. They just weren't coming under attack. But what they meant by those two words was pretty straightforward. By inspiration, they meant that God had breathed out his word, meaning that the words written down are the very words spoken by God. Fairly simple. Now, today, read books on inspiration and pretty much all modern authors will fall over themselves to reassure you that inspiration does not mean that God just dictates to the human authors. The reformers, in contrast, were much more happy to speak of dictation and of the human authors as the scribes of the Spirit. They would happily use that sort of language. And certainly there are quite a few cases where the Bible seems to suggest that that is what is going on. Think of Exodus 24, for example, where Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. Now, of course, when the reformers said that, they then had to deal with the question, how, if God is dictating to the human authors, why is it that different human authors come across so differently? Why is it that Paul smells so different to James? And their answer was that all the human authors of Scripture are like God's orchestra. So, Paul is a cello, James is a drum. God's the musician for both, but different instruments, they say it differently. Well, that was inspiration for the reformers. And it implied infallibility. That scripture is entirely true and trustworthy in all its assertions. All pretty simple. And it's that traditional meaning that the UCCF doctrinal basis has in mind. We'll see a little bit more of how that is. Today, 
Inspiration and infallibility have become extremely slippery terms, meaning really quite different things to different people. So many people now think of inspiration as a sort of illumination of the author, or even an illumination of the reader, not even the author. So basically, inspiration is a kind of spiritual Red Bull for someone. So, oh, you spot new things, you're a bit more sort of woken up. And uh, that's why um, Andrew McGowan, um, in his recent book, The Divine Spiration of Scripture, has argued we should now talk about the spiration of Scripture rather than its inspiration, to get away from that idea that it's just being inspired. That he's trying to say um, inspiration is about God breathing it out. It's not about God providing some enlightening wisdom or a kind of eureka moment for someone. Yeah. Now, personally, I think changing inspiration to spiration is not going to do anything. So I kind of go, who cares with changing vocab like that? I mean, whatever. I mean, w I, d I don't know about you, but when I was taught inspiration um, as a teenager, I was taught very clearly inspiration is God breathing out his words. I mean, I didn't struggle with that concept as a teenager. So I don't think we really need to play around with it. We just need to make clear people do know what it means. Infallibility? Well... The word is actually a little vague. And to say scripture is infallible is just to say it doesn't fail. But fail in what sense? Is it that it doesn't fail to achieve its overall purpose? Or is it that it doesn't fail even in the little details? And what started happening, especially from the 19th century, is some people started using the word infallible in a much looser sense than it had traditionally been used. And most commonly, that tended to mean, smell the Galileo split here, it tended to mean that scripture could be taken to be true in spiritual things, in spiritual matters, but not in matters of the observable facts of world history and science. It's infallible in the spiritual things, but not in the world history and science things. And that's why, in America, more conservative theologians started in the 19th century um, to qualify what they meant by infallibility by using the word inerrancy. Um, that is, that scripture does not err. It has no mistakes in it. Now, this is a little confusing. So uh, please stop me if, if I lose you here. Because in Britain, conservative theologians tend to be happy to stick to the old traditional word infallibility. And they meant by it what the conservative Americans meant by inerrancy. Yeah? And that's why when the doctrinal basis uses the word infallibility rather than inerrancy, it does so because it's a British document. And the Brits used infallibility. It's not making a statement about the fact that it doesn't believe in inerrancy. The traditional doctrine of infallibility is essentially the modern doctrine of inerrancy. But... So whilst in Britain, 
all the Conservatives were happily infallibilists. In America, you started to have the infallibilists on one side who thought there could be probably minor errors and the inerrantists on the other who thought there couldn't. Yeah? Now, just say, um, in all this, we're talking about the original autographs, the original manuscripts written by the apostles and prophets. Yeah? No one's suggesting that every Bible translation is perfect. We're, we're talking about the original manuscripts. Sorry, well, there are some people as the King James-only crowd. Um, but, yeah, there's a gentle swing taken at them in one of the Merry Theologians recently. Um, that there's a problem with that position. Anyway, so the inerrancy infallibility debate, now really it's an American thing, but it got noisy enough in America to be heard over the pond. And so what I want to do is I want to just give you a quick introduction to that debate and try to keep it a little bit quick. Basically, it starts in the 1880s at Princeton with this guy, B.B. Warfield. And B.B. Warfield put together his magisterial defense of uh, inspiration and inerrancy. Now, Warfield believed that he, in defending inerrancy, was just articulating the historically orthodox understanding of biblical infallibility. You see, he's defending the historical view of infallibility with this new word, inerrancy, defending it basically against liberal criticism of the Bible. Yeah? You've been listening to Delighting in the Trinity with Michael Reeves, brought to you by Union. Union is devoted to growing leaders and growing churches. Our School of Theology equips leaders for ministry. Union Publishing supplies them and their churches with quality theological resources and books. Union Mission supports and financially helps church planting and revitalization. And Newton House Oxford invests in the next generation of theologians and scholars. Our vision is to see leaders and their churches the world over reformed and renewed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out about our courses and learning communities around the world, to buy Union books, to discover support for your church plant, or to become a friend of Union and support our ministry, visit www.viola.gy.